I hate to bust your bubble, but Forrest was a fictional character. I know. I could tell you something about Santa Claus too, but I won't. Um, Does that mean God doesn't do miracles? What does the book of Acts have to teach us about this? Well, you know, one of the things I think that can happen when we look at a book like this is that we can make some assumptions and maybe even mistakes. We can assume, first of all, that every story, every circumstance, every situation that we read in the book of Acts is going to happen to us today. Now, we understand, of course, that Acts is primarily a history book, right? It's a historical account of what God did through the early church. And obviously, there are things that were to learn or we wouldn't go through it. But because, for instance, that Peter struck down Ananias and Sapphira after they lied, does that mean that every church leader then is to strike down everybody who lies and they're going to die? Is that what that means? Of course not. But there's some things that we can learn from that. So a fair reading of Acts recognizes this historical reality and that there's some uniqueness but also some application for us. But we can't go too far and think and make another mistake that God does not work supernaturally anymore. And there's some thinking like that. It says that miracles were only intended for the apostles to do. A common stream or thought is that God doesn't heal or do miracles in this dispensation. And that will probably ring in some person's ears here today who grew up learning about a certain eschatological way that God works. In fact, I heard uh, or read one commentator who said, we read of no miracles in the New Testament after the book of Acts. Well, first of all, there's no historical book after the book of Acts. The rest of them are epistles or, or, or teaching books. And they'll even throw a bone, you know, and say, well, God heals, but not through individuals who have the gift of healing because it doesn't fit within this strict dispensational scheme. Well, I just have to be honest with you. I find that to be rather constraining. And to me, it just seems like a man-made structure of theology that we put on top of the Bible that boxes God in in a way that I'm just not comfortable with boxing God in. Why can't we just let the word of God speak for itself and let the book of Acts speak for itself and just take it at face value? And so I'm simply approaching it in a way that says, all right, God, what do you have to teach me today about this? And I certainly do not want to put you know, some constraints on this story and say, God can't do this or, or, or he can do that. So let's just read it. Let's learn from it what we can and allow God to do in us what he wills, all right? Let's all stand and look at Acts chapter 3. For those of you that are visiting with us, we like to stand when we read the word of God. And it's a way in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah they did it. It just kind of gives honor to the word. And for those who are really committed, they stand during the whole sermon, too. It's a way to really show your commitment to Jesus, all right? 
Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this story, your word, And that you might cause wonder and amazement in our own lives, and not just from this story, but from what you're doing even today. Encourage and challenge us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. We know that the author of Acts is a man by the name of Luke. We know that Luke is a doctor, and we know that doctors usually give great attention to detail. And such was the case here for Luke, because he includes in this narrative the time, the place, the participants, and even the gestures of the people in this story. Peter and John have teamed up before in ministry, and they are teaming up here within this Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, this was something common for these early believers. They were both Jewish and Christian. They were used to going to the temple, and they continued to do so. They didn't see their Judaism as necessarily being in direct conflict with their Christianity. They saw it more as a fulfillment of their faith, their Judaism. They arrived at a time that our text says was at 3 p.m. or the ninth hour. It calls it the ninth hour. The the Jewish day is scheduled from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. Now the Jews had three traditional times in which they would pray in the temple. They would pray at at, at 9 a.m., they would pray at noon, they would uh, pray at 3 p.m., and they would also have the sacrifices at 3 p.m. So as you can imagine, there were hundreds, even thousands of Jews that would gather at this 3 p.m. hour for prayer and the sacrifices. So this lame man is no dummy. He comes at the busiest time to beg for money. So the tradition was to come three times to pray. And traditions are meant to punctuate our lives with reminders of those things that are important. There were things that were important to these believers that they still continued to pray daily. It was cool, actually, as I wrote, a gentleman gave him, a friend of mine, who wrote a commentary on Acts. It's actually my favorite commentary on Acts. And I emailed him yesterday thanking him for his commentary and some of the things that I, that I appreciated. He goes, well, as a matter of fact, I'm in Jerusalem. 
giving a tour, and he's showing people this very place of the, the temple. That was cool. Verse 2 says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, why would Luke tell us that this man was lame from birth? Because this was a certified, authentic miracle. This was not, you know, one of those TV miracles that you have no way of verifying. This was not some, you know, I've got this pain in my side. Can you heal that? I mean, nobody else can tell whether you actually have a pain in the side. You could see that this guy was lame. We know from actually chapter four that he'd been there for at least 40 years. He had had this ailment. 40 years he couldn't walk. You could see his feet and his ankles. 40 years he stood there at the temple asking for alms, and so thousands of people knew about this man. He was carried daily to the steps entering the temple just outside the beautiful gate. And just inside this gate was a kind of courtyard where the women or the cripple could go to, but they couldn't go any further because there were doors there keeping them from entering in. Why? Because women and the lame were considered ceremonially unclean. Only the ceremoniously clean men could enter in and do the sacrifices. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that there were other gates that had precious metals, but this one, it had Corinthian bronze, and he said it far exceeded the glory of the other gates. It was adorned with golden plates. So massive was the gate that Josephus said it took 20 people to close it. It was 75 feet high. 60 feet wide. Think of this rich and lavish door. A barrier to keep others out who were unclean. Not only was it a blockade to women and the infirmed, but it was, it was gaudy, it was a gilded pleasure. You know, Ephesians 2.14 speaks of a dividing wall that keeps us from God, a dividing wall that keeps us from one another. Isn't it sad that one of the greatest walls is religion that keeps people from enjoying God with freedom and joy, has its emphasis on human performance, its rejection of grace, It's penchant for man-made rules to parade their self-righteousness. That's religion. This man was begging, it said, for nearly 40 years. Now, this may be, the text doesn't say this, but I think this is an implication that, or or a, uh, a side note that we could make, I should say. Think of who else could have possibly passed this man if he'd been there for all of these years. Who else used to always go to the temple to teach? It was Jesus. Jesus. Ask yourself the question, why didn't Jesus, now, and I know this is conjecture, the passage doesn't say this, but allow me some latitude because I think it actually makes a point. Why didn't Jesus heal this man earlier? You ever think of that? 
Well, because Jesus didn't heal every single lame person he came in contact with. Now, in some locations, he did do that. Other locations, it said they didn't have faith. In John 5, 1 through 9, it gives the story of Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. And it says there that there were a multitude of invalids who would come there. But Jesus healed one. The point is, there is not some formula or or special words to guarantee healing. We need to not forget that there is the free will and sovereignty of God that is involved in these things. And I think God has purpose for healing that often extends beyond the need of the individual who's lame. Verse 3 says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So the man sees Peter and John near the door, and he asks them for money. Now, typically, donors would, you know, just flip a coin without even barely looking at the person, right? That would be their only acknowledgement, just drop something in their uh, container. And what could have been simply an occasion for some mechanical charity was turned instead into a personal encounter. We cannot gloss over this with Peter and John. It says they directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Look at us. They turned this into something personal. This, I think, typified their entire ministry philosophy. You know the scenario of how it happens for us. Or I go down James River, I get off on Campbell, and I want to go to Sam's, which is, of course, our cultural holy of holies, all right? (laughs) And you'll see somebody there begging for food there on the corner. And every day you can see somebody there at James River in Campbell. Now, normally, you'll have some, no, I shouldn't say normally, but I think, Okay, normally. Uh, You'll have some negative thoughts, right? Let's just be honest. You have some negative thoughts. You might even have some compassionate thoughts, but once you drive by, it goes out of your mind, and then you're back to shopping at Sam's. I don't give you this scenario to shame you, but to just point out how unusual it was for Peter and John to do what they did to recognize this lame man. They directed their gaze. They they had intent. They were looking straight into the man's eyes and they wanted him to look at them. They acknowledged his presence. They gave him value by acknowledging him. Do you really see us? Because we really see you. We see what's going on. We acknowledge your pain. They were giving him full attention. And our passage is quick to add that the man thought that this was going to equal big bucks when Peter said, hey, look at us. He was quickly disappointed. 
But that turned into something else, didn't it? My friends, maybe we need to stop right here and ask ourselves, are we too busy in our religious duty on Sunday morning, too busy even in our families, too busy with our daily lives, too busy on our jobs to not notice the people right in front of us, to not even talk or engage the people within our own roof (laughs) or on our jobs who recognize their pain, that they're there, eyeball to eyeball. Or even the clerk in front of us, who, by the way, it's my experience, if you acknowledge the clerk at Walmart and give them personal attention, they will tell you their life story in five minutes. (laughs) Don't be in a hurry and show you care, all right, because they will tell you. Next week, we are going to have a leader of a ministry in our own city in the worst part of our city, that CCC is going to partner with. Our elders have talked with him, interviewed him. Our staff has done the same. It's in the poorest section of our city. And our goal is that we as a church would have at least one, and I know many of you are already involved, and that's great, but this gives us one area corporately that we can be eyeball to eyeball face-to-face with the least of these. Money is good and fine, but there are some needs that money can't touch, some needs that money cannot fix, some things that money simply cannot buy. And it starts with human touch, human affection, actually caring, real love. You know, when James wrote what the real definition is for religion, real religion, authentic religion. He didn't say, you know, when you build tall buildings, man, that's when you know God is really at work. Or, you know, when you've got some programs and a bunch of people show up, that's when you really know God is at work. Now, nothing wrong with that, but it's not the essence. Here's the essence. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, James 1.27, God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows and their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. To see them, to visit them, to acknowledge them, that's real religion. To spend time with those who are not as advantaged. You can give money to the AIDS victim, but to be eyeball to eyeball and cry for the pain and the grief that they're going through, that's a whole other level. That's real, genuine care and religion without the judgment. This could be in nursing homes. This could be with a neighbor. Could be in a foreign country. Could be at a children's home or orphanage or someone's residence. We need to be deliberate, intentional, face-to-face to love well. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. One of the best ways we can show that we love somebody is simply to listen to them. Because isn't it true when somebody's in pain? You know what? I can up that. Let me tell you my story. 
and we spend the whole time talking about ourselves. But love says, tell me more. And it listens. Notice that Peter and John offered this man not what he was asking for. And his expectations were dashed. But that was a window for greater hopes that were soon realized. And how interesting, isn't it, that in midst of the largest, most expensive religious establishment of the day, this man's real needs went on for years without being met. And this stands as a challenge to any ministry establishment. You can spend money, you can do the programs, but are we loving well? Are we face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball? In the face of the opulence of the programming of the self-righteous performance, God had to break through to this man to meet his real need, and he did it through Peter and John. The issue is not the size of the church or the amount of money. It's the intent of the heart. It's the vision of the people. Peter and John understood what they were there to do, to be a a Christ-dependent community equipping people to impact their world. Listen, we cannot do that without relationships, without loving well. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter's words show us that ministry is not limited by money. I think, but only by our vision. I think it's easy. And I've said it myself in in the early years. I said, man, you know, if we only had more money, we could do this and this and this. That's a wrong way of thinking because money is not limiting in terms of your vision. You can accomplish the vision that God gives you with any amount of money you have. You just stay true to that vision and you do it. And so we're more vision-driven than money-driven. And in a religious climate that, listen, it, it sees God's blessing only through money. That's the kind of climate we're in. It's refreshing to hear Peter's words. It's almost kind of an anti-prosperity gospel. And he says, I have no silver and gold. I mean, hey, put that on, on your church marquee. We have no money. <laughs> People will flock. They love to be a part of that. Oh, that's a poor church. Let's get involved with them. We have no money. It doesn't limit what God can do. We got it backwards. Peter and John had something so much better, so much more powerful, so much more effective. Christ can do for us what we cannot do ourselves. And this is a story, I think, that first of all, it pictures salvation. We uh, have an ultimate need in our heart, a sin problem, and Christ meets that ultimate need. And in a cultural climate where... Where, where people see a political solution as the way to deliver some type of utopia, oh, the gospel is great news because what our country needs is not a certain political leader. It needs a spiritual revival. 
It needs the hearts of people changed because you have these battling worldviews going on in our culture, and it's just going to get worse unless people's hearts change, and only the gospel does that. And until then, people are just going to see it as, as foolishness. But 1 Corinthians says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You can just put transformation over that. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in this. Look at this beautiful facility we have. Oh, man. Look at all the people that are coming. Do you know that our general fund is double now what it was? No. What are you going to boast in? You boast in the Lord. You boast in the Lord. And you stay on Facebook. Do that too. It just, it, to me, <laughs> side note, right? A lot of boasting on Facebook, is it not? All right. A lot of boasting. This story, I think, also applies not only to people who need Christ, but it applies to us. Because there are things in our life that we need done that only God can do. And Christ meets the ultimate need for us as well, be it in the home, be it with PTSD, be it on the job, whatever the need is, Christ can meet that need. And notice how Peter did it. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He speaks not by virtue of his own authority, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Invoking the name of Jesus is not some, you know, magic formula, but a simple recognition that all the blessings of God come through Christ. I live my life in light of the power of Christ in me. That's what Philippians 4.13 means, is that I can do all things through Christ. It means, the, and, and the emphasis is, all the things. I can do all things through Christ. I can wash the dishes. I can, I can uh, drive in my car. I can do my job. I can have relationships in the house through Christ and his strength. And when we come to Christ, he's able to meet our need. And what happened for this man is he felt strength come to his feet and his ankles, legs that had never supported that weight before now straighten up and he rises to full height. How about not walking for 40 years and now this man immediately stands and listen to what happens and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know what it's like if you don't work out for several weeks or months or years? Uh, you know, your legs aren't quite as springy, right? Or just maybe even getting out of the bed in the morning, you know, you're like a little woozy. What does this guy do? He hasn't walked in at least 40 years, and he starts leaping through the temple like he's on a pogo stick. Now that's miraculous because God not only healed him, but restored those legs to full strength. That's amazing. Before he was a lame beggar that had to be brought before this temple, before the, the, the court of the Gentiles at the gate of the sanctuary. And day by day he sat there 
but he couldn't enter through. Lame, blemished, denied access, certainly to the inner courts. It begs the question, what's prohibiting you and me from having a joyful, free relationship with God to where we can enter in? What is it? Is it some sin that is easily encumbering, some bondage, some shame that is holding you down? What is it? What is it that's prohibiting you from worshiping God with an unadulterated joy? What is it that's in us that causes us to be a, a critic instead of a participant in worship? This man embodied the truth of what was promised about the Messiah in Isaiah 35 when it said, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I love that. I love that. Here you have this corrupt worship going on in the temple, and here's true worship. It's the real stuff. It's an instantaneous gratitude to God for what he's done. Everyone could see this man. It was authenticated by hundreds of people who could attest that he was handicapped, and now he is healed. And it says that people were filled with wonder and amazement. Wonder means that there was this distinct sense of awe that God had done this work, that something divine had interrupted this natural world. And there was wonder. And then there was amazement. That something highly unusual happened. Something woke them up from their slumber. This wasn't manufactured by TV cameras. This wasn't because some carnival barker got on the stage triping about some miracle that nobody could attest to. This was the real thing that caused people to stand up straight and say that had to be God because there's no other explanation. And God got their attention. And we read in the the rest of, uh, of this chapter and into chapter four, how Peter leveraged this as a way to give a message about Jesus. So I ask you, does God work today? Does he work in a supernatural way? We just heard a testimony about it, didn't we not? We see God working miracles and healing when we see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've had testimonies of people with cancer healed in our own congregation. We've seen self-centered men turned into servant leaders. I think transformation of a person is the greatest miracle of all. Imagine the stories that this man could tell from that point on to the end of his life, to his family or to anyone else who would listen of what God had done in his life. And what's your story? What's your story of how God has intervened? Maybe it was, I was emotionally troubled, but I received healing from the Holy Spirit through a friend or through prayer. And now the congregation is taking notice. Is God still moving supernaturally in the church today? Let us not be lulled into thinking that somehow God is not active, not moving, not involved on our behalf. Because all you have to do is listen to the hundreds of stories that are represented here. Of how God took 
self-centered, self-righteous, even religious, hell-bound people and healed them and remade them into servants of the Most High King who now live their lives for another kingdom. That, to me, is supernatural. That, to me, is a way that God works. Let's pray.